ஓரஞ்சனம் நித்தியம் அனந்தரூபம் பக்தானுகம்பாதிரிதவிகிரகம் வை ஈஷாவதாரம் பரமேஷமிடியம் ராமகிருஷ்ணம் ஜனிம் சாரதாம் தேவிம் ராமகிருஷ்ணம் ஜகத்குரும் பாதபத்மேத்தோஸ்ரணமாமி முமஸ்ரீயதிராய விவேகானந்தூரை So after the Christmas break, we are here again to resume our classes. So wish you all a very happy new year. So the chapter on which we were discussing, the Swami Vivekananda's Karma Yoga, we help ourselves not the world so that's the chapter the initial portion the initial portion we found swami ji went bit out of the topic to discuss the various other aspects of karma which we find has been described in the various uh, uh, philosophies the various uh, scriptures so all those uh, ideas of karma that the karma includes the uh, what you say the repetition of the mantras the rituals and those mantras have some power the power means uh, when you are repeating those mantras even if you don't know the meaning it has some powers because of the parampara which we were discussing that those mantras most probably have been repeated has been chanted for ages together by so many realized souls with the help of those mantras they went to the realization and that's why that's how they have created an new sphere as a term and uh, nowadays it's not common it used to be used previously new sphere means just like atmosphere there is an atmosphere of mental thought vibrations so it's there when we can get tuned to a particular mental thought vibration we can avail all the thought vibration which is already there so that's why swami vivekananda used to say that even if you are not proactive you are not doing anything which has the social implications that i am not undertaking any activity which has some palpable which has some palpable result as per the development of the society's concern still if i am just sitting in the corner of a room or what to say of a room in the words of swami vivekananda if you are in a cave in the himalayas far far away from society from the civilization know it for certain if you can sit there and think good thoughts that itself is going to do an immense good to the human kind because those thoughts are not lost they remain as vibrations any other who get person who get attuned to those thoughts immediately get the benefit by getting tuned to that vibration they get benefited it's a type of tirtha going to a tirtha when we go to some pilgrimage is the same thing we find sometimes that when we go to the shrine when we go to any temple when we go to some holy place in spite of the fact that my mind was not prepared though i was not feeling as such what you say that uh, very uh, spiritual i was most probably for certain reason dejected i was in a very melancholic stream whatever it may be but the moment i go there suddenly i find there is a change in my psyche total temperament changes suddenly i start feeling that i am also feeling quite tranquil quite serene quite calm so what has happened that's the place which has been made vibrant which has been made pure by the holy vibrations of the collective humanity 
So many people go there, think good thoughts. They make it a point that when we are there, we are going to have a different type of life. We will just lead a life of a recluse to a certain extent. We will uh, not be dealing with our worldly day-to-day -day activities. We will be contemplating. We'll be trying to communicate with the divine. And those are the things which helps in creating that vibration. That's why very nicely it has been spoken that how the tirthas are created in Sanskrit, in some of our scriptures it is mentioned, uh, it's in Narada Bhakti Sutra. Tirthi Kurvanti Sadhava. That the sadhakas, those who are practitioners, they create the tirtha, the holiness. Tirtha is the holy place and its holiness is the tirthi. The who creates that holiness? It is all the sadhakas. All those who are practicing by contributing to that holy vibration of that place by their contemplative thought, they're contributing. Anyone who goes there can easily avail that. So that's why sometimes we find that many say that we don't know the meaning of the mantra. Uh, why should I repeat? So know it for certain. The mantras like Gayatri Mantra for ages together have been chanted by so many millions of people. And that has actually created a wonderful vibration. The moment we repeat it, if we know the meaning well and good, it of course uh, uh, increases its efficacy. It uh, gives it more power. But even if you don't know its meaning, just by chanting, we get attuned to that vibration. It's like the mobile number. The number as such has no meaning. The moment you dial a particular number, which is tuned to the dial tone of a particular person immediately. You can communicate with that person. So similarly here, these mantras are like those numbers. If it, ha it has a meaning, well and good, you know it. If you don't have the meaning, just if it's like a number, which has a it is tuned to the particular frequency, it can help us to get tuned with those all those holy thoughts. And that aspect of karma, this mantra yoga, the rituals will be performed. All those aspects in the entire karma yoga, Swamiji has not uh, taken into the discussion. So he thought that why not make us aware of those aspects of karma yoga, which has a great role to play in our spiritual journey. So he's not excluding them just by speaking of karma yoga as unselfish work. He's not restricting there. He's rest he has extended to all those ideas of the power of mantra. So now today, the as the topic of this lecture is concerned, Swamiji will now enter into the theme of that topic. So we will enter into the text, we will read the text, and gradually we will try to discuss on what Swamiji is intending to say. Our duty to others means helping others, doing good to the world. Why should we do good to the world? Apparently to help the world, but really to help ourselves. We should always try to help the world. That should be the highest motive in us. But if we consider well, we find that the world does not require our help at all. The world was not made that you or I should come to come and help it. I once read a sermon in which it was said, all this beautiful world is very good because it gives us time and opportunity to help others. Apparently, this is a very beautiful sentiment, but is it not a blasphemy to say that the world needs our help. That's a very wonderful idea which Swamiji is speaking of. That yes, it's our duty to help others, to always reach out and help others, whether it's our own relatives, friends, the society. So we always try to reach out and help others. It's of course good. But the orientation beyond helping others is a very important thing. In this life, we will find that so many with the intention to help others at last ends up with a very pessimistic attitude. 
They feel that the world can never be helped. If the other persons are ungrateful, they have no sense of gratitude. They don't relate to my good uh, motivations, the good orientation. Many cases we find that frustration, tremendous frustration is there. That why that frustration comes? Because we don't have the proper orientation to do good the work, do good work. So the Swami Vivekananda is speaking of the orientation we need when we reach out to help others. So what's that? We should never feel that I'm going to change the world. It's almost impossible. We feel sometimes that we are so important that without me, what will happen to my near and dear ones? Without me, how the all so-called the dependents can sustain themselves. But we find that the world moves on. We are not the one who are uh, the essential part of the existence. Even if we are not there, the world goes on as it is. It in no way gets affected by our existence. So first thing we should remember that, that I am not the one without whom the world would stop. So that's why Swamiji is saying, it's a blasphemy. The Lord is taking care of his own creation. God is taking care of his creation. So I am, if I just have to change the attitude by thinking that God is taking care of his creation through me, through you, through all other beings, the love, the compassion which I feel is not something which I owe. It is something spontaneous. When I see a person in some dire need and I feel empathetic, compassionate towards that person, is that compassion something which you have developed? If you really try to judge, we will find it is something which is ingrained in our psyche. So even in biology, they have started, in the, uh, they have started recognizing it. So they say in our genes, this to help others is there. Because that's how by uh, helping others, we have developed a synergy, that win-win situation. It's not unselfishness. Actually, all the help which we provide to the world is enlightened selfishness. It's not unselfishness that we know somehow by uh, existing together, by cooperating, we all are benefited. That the entire herd, the entire community that way uh, enjoys the result of that cooperation, of that synergy. As such, uh, uh, I alone am not the one there to help others. So that's the plan of the universe. So it's a blasphemy. The Lord has planned his creation in such a way that where we relate to the world with the concept of yagya in the Bhagavad Gita, we will find that Bhagavan is stating that fact when he's saying sahayagya prajasrishtva puravacha prajapati. Sahayagya. When the first he created Brahma, he created him with the idea of yagya. This idea of yagya, we should not limit it with only the fire sacrifice. What's the idea behind the fire sacrifice? That the idea is, it appears to be a bit childish sometimes, that I have, litten, I have, I have lit the fire and offering oblations to it. Now, what's the basic idea? Why I'm offering oblations to the fire? Those oblations are meant for all the so-called ideas of the divinities. The various divinities, you will find that now I'm offering it to Indra, to Vayu, to other devatas. And why am I, am I offering it to the fire? In fire, everything is going to burn out. No, and when I'm offering it to the fire, the fire, the Agni Devata is the mouth of all the devas. What I pour as oblation, that is taken by the fire. Uh, and is if the fire is the means through which that oblation reaches all the so-called devatas. So that's the basic 
idea behind all the yagya that I'm offering the oblations meant for all the various so-called deities. Why I'm doing it? Because when there is no rain, I offer the oblation. It goes to Indra and Indra will be pouring the rain. So what's the idea there, the main idea? How much, uh, whether this is true or false, we need not go into it. The, we, let us go to the Id, basic idea. The basic idea of Yajna is this, I offer my oblations to the divine, in return, divine gives me rain. So this entire world is Yajna, interconnectedness. We are all relating that I reach out and in return, I am benefited. So that's the basic idea of yajna. When God is saying that sahayagya prajasrishto, he doesn't mean that with the fire sacrifice he has created the integration. Then we will be limiting that idea. Yajna is everywhere. This interconnectedness is the idea of yajna. So when uh, I met this professor uh, George Smoot, he was a Nobel laureate, he got the Nobel Prize. Uh, so he got the Nobel Prize uh, uh, in physics, some long uh, 2000s something he got in the Nobel Prize and he came to India and in IIT Kharagpur uh, there was a huge gathering of the students from the various schools, they came and after a short discourse, suitable for the students for the school students, now he opened up with a question answer session so in the question answer session uh, he himself suddenly asked a question have you seen an alien? So all the children were puzzled, a bit puzzled. Why he's asking so? They thought, is there any alien? So the children were just thinking. They couldn't answer. Then he himself told. Do you? He asked again another question. Do you want to see an alien? So immediately we find that all the, as a, you know, the children are like that. They all shouted together, yes, we do of course want to see the alien. And then the scientist told, well, you all go and stand in front of the mirror. Go and stand in front of the mirror, you can see the alien. The idea is that nothing in our body, after all, we are all constituted of the matter. This physical body is constituted of the matter and all the materials, the minerals, which constitute our body, not a single mineral has been created on this earth. We are actually, these are the words which you will find used very much nowadays that we are all star dust in the core of the star these minerals were created and this earth is a product of that and we our body everything is a product of that what's that means that the entire universe is interconnected i am not a segregated existence separate existence apart from the universe this constant interaction is going on we are giving something to the world. The world in return is giving us something. So this interaction is the idea of yajna. That's how the universe has been created. Now, if I say without me, the world won't exist, it's the biggest blasphemy. So that's why Swamiji is saying that apparently this is a very beautiful sentiment. What's the sentiment? That once I read a sermon in which it was said, all this beautiful world is very good because it gives us time and opportunity to help others. We are not there as such to help others. We are designed in such a way that we have to cooperate with others. So when we have that idea of the too much of self-importance, it defeats its own purpose. I cannot really help others. I will be frustrated in short time. So that's why he's saying, apparently this is a very beautiful sentiment, but is it not a blasphemy to say that the world needs our help. We cannot deny that, it, that there is much misery in it. There is misery in the world, we cannot deny. So to go out and help others is therefore the best thing we can do. The next thing is very important. Although in the long run, we shall find that helping others is only helping ourselves. So. This is the orientation we should have. It's not to help the world, to help ourselves, we have to reach out. Why? How we help ourselves, not the world? Because the idea, basic idea is in spiritual life, the basic thing 
is to get rid of our ego. When someone asked Ramakrishna that when shall I be free? His immediate reply was wonderful. When I cease to be. In the name of liberation, before you will find in the world, even a few years back, I was reading an article. In the name of spirituality, the so-called spiritual persons have been, are found to be more selfish, more egoistic, constantly thinking my liberation, my liberation. It's a big paradox. Whose liberation? Mine. Who's that my, who is that me? That petty self. It wants, it doesn't want the so-called challenges of life. It wants to be at, uh, away from the, have its own security comfort zone. And that is the liberation idea they have. It's a big paradox. In the name of spirituality, in the world we find the so-called, those who pose themselves to be a spiritual person are the most selfish person. The maximum self-aggrandizement is there for those persons because the total idea of spirituality is based on a very false ground. In the name of spirituality, they're pampering their ego. That little me, which is not going to stay, which is going to be washed away, is it is just a part of the flow. We give so much importance to it. Ami jabe jabe. That ego has to go off. Even if it means my pen, let me move out to help the world. That way ego should be faced. Other becomes an important person. And that also not as a person. I see the divine in him. A few days back, a wonderful recollection I was reading. Swami Yatishwaranandaji. He was in Bangalore. He's a very, he was a senior Swami. He was revered for his spiritual advance. He was a very highly advanced spiritual soul. One day in an ashram, just a married couple came, a young married couple came in Bangalore. Just an ordinary person. And uh, the lunch time was over. He called one of the brahmacharis and told that, see, some food is there or not. The food was there. Food was served to them. Yatishwarandaji was sitting. Such a revered Swami was sitting in front of them and just almost was entertaining them. And this brahmachari was puzzled that this ordinary couple came that also in off the off hours, not in proper time. And what, why Swamiji is so inclined to serve them? So he, it was because it puzzled. And when this couple left, they were so happy that the Swami them himself came, served them. They were so happy with full glee, the happiness, they left the ashram. Swamiji felt the feeling of those, that brahmachari, that instead of being in meditation, being in seclusion, why should you move out just to serve this uh, two couple? Just one sentence he told. They were the Lakshmi Narayana, just this much. Just see, this is the motivation that he was not serving just uh, then a couple came, a married couple came, he was not serving them. He saw the Lakshmi and Narayana in them. He himself is sitting to serve them even in off hours, coming out from his so-called regular course and duty, chores and duties. So that's the idea, always be there. And that way what we do, self-effacement. That I have to meditate now, nothing else I will do. I have these hours of my study. Even if someone comes, this is off hours. I am not going to entertain them. That's not in any way, it's not going to help us spiritually. Know it for certain. That's the thing Swamiji is hammering again and again. The entire, our nation in the name of spirituality has actually entered into a great tamas by pampering their ego. In the name of spirituality, we find two things. Either self-aggrandizement, self-advertisement, and an extreme selfishness where they want to be in a very away from all the challenges of life. If that was the spirituality, then why Bhagavan in Gita is asking the Arjuna who wants to retreat from the fight with all those so-called apparently uh, all these sublime ideas that I want to become a sannyasi, why he is reproaching him and asking him to fight. Sometimes by uh, that we just don't understand the very basic uh, idea of the scripture. The Gita starts with that. All the, our spiritual 
scriptures will start with a crisis bhagavatam starts with a crisis and it's not running away from the crisis how to face the spiritual ideas are the weapons by which i face the world not run away from it this is the very basic thing if we don't have in the name of spirituality we may be living in a world which is akasha kushuma akasha kushuma means you are building a palace in the sky which you can never do you are just thinking of a lotus in the sky which can never be it is it is just an imagination so this we resort to this akasha kushuma thoughts when we have not this proper orientation wherever there is a chance of self effacement know it for certain that alone can lead to the true spirituality so that that why it is how it is helping ourselves when we are reaching out it is only the self effacement it is a removal of the ego that's what actually uh, swami ji is indicating it helps ourselves the more we can move out it is not helping the world why it is not helping the world very nice example swami ji will say actually this world is never helped so many avatars spiritual giants came so many uh, great person came with all those political ideologies have the world changed a bit if not it has gone for the worse that's why swami ji in some other lecture he has mentioned this world is a rheumatic patient for a rheumatic patient if you if a rheumatic patient has a pain in his knees you give a nice massage the pain may go away from the knees but it will shift to some other place it never you can never get rid of it it just changes its form and that's what constantly is happening in this world what example swami ji is giving here is also very nice as a boy i had some white mice they were kept in a little box in which there were little wheels and when the mice tried to cross the wheels the wheels turned and turned and the mice never got anywhere so it is with the world and helping and our helping it it's a fact know it for certain you will find however you try to help the world as such you can never help the remedy there is no remedy to the world's problem it just changes its nature constantly it is just changing its nature even in the time of swami vivekananda the communism the socialism these ideas were so prevalent and we know that in after him is in another 100 years those ideas were really practiced so many nations were ascribing to it and we really had an idea this is something which is going to change the world has the world changed we won't say whether it is that communism socialism is good or bad we are not bringing that into uh, the discussion at all that's the pre- there's a purview of the politics we just let us just try to understand have the world changed we speak of millennium has the millennium come it never will come why in vedanta it has been dealt very nicely because of the mula agyana the world from where it comes from ignorance the self which is beyond all limitation somehow tries to experience its limitlessness through all the things which are limited that i know i am going to die but within me someone says you are not your eternal so this is the idea that some we are trying to realize the limitlessness within the limits that's the basic mula gyana how can you have perfection here you can never have perfection this world because the world is a product of the basic ignorance there cannot be any solution as such in the world only the problems have some temporary relief but the basic unless that basic mula gyan is taken care of there is no solution to the problems of the world and the moment you take care of the mula gyan the world is not there so this is the thing but i want to stay in the world with my spirituality i want to change the world it's a paradox 
that the spiritual evolution at last, the world is not there. You are beyond it. So I cannot think of perfection here. Then why should I do good? The only thing is it's helping me by self-effacement and it is taking me more and more to the spiritual realization. That the basic ignorance behind the existence is the sense of limited individuality through which we are trying to experience the limitlessness, which is never possible. How to get rid of it? To get rid of this idea of this limited individuality. Once we get rid of it, we go beyond this phenomenal existence. And so that's why Swamiji is saying that each and every attempt to help the world will not help the world because world is ultimately the product of that ignorance. Only the nature of its problem will be changing. But in the process of trying to help others, I will be practicing self-effacement and that will be making me pure, chitta shuddhi. More and more, my chitta becomes pure. The I becomes attenuated. I starts falling off. And that takes you more and more nearer to the divine. So that's the thing. The world never changes. It's like that box, very nice example. Even in the modern psychology, they actually speak of this same example, same uh, analogy. If you uh, hear the lectures of positive psychology where they speak of learned helplessness, the same example has been spoken of. I don't know from where Swamiji have heard it, but even in the modern psychology, the same example that in a box, in the middle, there are some wheels. The mice is kept on the one end of the box and most probably have kept some food on the other end. The mice tries to reach the food and it has to cross over those wheels. Now the moment the wheels are frictionless. So the moment the mice tries to get over the wheels, the wheel rotates. It will be just like a, uh, your, uh, what do you say that, uh, in the gym, when you are just uh, running over, uh, uh, what is the treadmill? So it's like a treadmill. So you're running, but you're running in the same place. It's just like the wheels are turning and you cannot go to the other side. So the mice in last, at last stops trying because they know that I cannot cross. So that's the learned helplessness. So here Swamiji is giving that example in our attempt to help the world, if we have that orientation that I am going to change the world, we will be creating enemies. First, frustration will be there. And I will, after some time, will think that the world is not there to help me in my good motivation. And there are so many enemies. Why we are constantly fighting with all our good intentions? Because I find that my... Uh, this intention to help others is not fructifying in any way. And I start finding enemies everywhere. All our attempt to help the world at last ends up in fanaticism, that my way is the correct, others way is the wrong. And as others are not cooperating with me, that's why no change is possible. Fanaticism, you just look at the present world. With all your so-called intentions to help the world, at last we become a horrible fanatic and we create a lot of enemies. Our aim was to help the world, at last we end up with only enemical attitude. So that's the thing Swami is saying, this. you have to change the attitude before we really go to help others. So it is with the world and our helping it. The only help is that we get moral exercise. That's the thing. In our process to help the world, we are not giving importance to that I. That I is the core of sin. If you take the word, literal word with sin, S-I-N, I is in middle of S and N. So literally, I is the core of the word sin. And also, not only literally, even in the spiritual sense, it is the I, ego, I, that is the core of sin. The more we get rid of it, the more we become divine, the more our so-called dross in the form of all the so-called worldliness that starts falling off. So that's why Swami said that is the moral exercise which he's speaking of. The only help 
is that we get moral exercise. This world is neither good nor evil. Each man manufactures a world for himself. So means this world is neither good or evil. What, how this world is just an incident, just an happening. How we react to that happening. That speaks of the good and evil. How I'm reacting to it. It's our reaction, which so-called is interpreted as good or bad. The world is as it is. It is neither good nor bad. So only help is that, achha, the world is neither good nor evil. Each man manufactures a world for himself. If a blind man begins to think of the world, it is either as soft or hard, or as cold or hot. We are a mass of happiness or misery. We have seen that hundreds of times in our lives. This constant interaction with the world, the way we are reacting, that is creating this happiness and misery. There's nothing so-called happiness or misery outside. In Yoga Sutra, that word klesha is used. That the vrittis can be two types, klishta or klishta. So when I'm looking something, I said the table, there's no emotive faculty involved in it. It is just a table. But the moment I see a delicacy, the liking for it immediately gets associated with that delicacy. So the moment that our emotive faculty gets associated with the vritti, and that creates all the problem in our life. So in spiritual life, to get rid of the clashes, that's the goal. So here, that's all these clashes is a product of how we are projecting out. So uh, that's the thing we will find that Swami is, as a rule, we will find that the young are optimistic and the old are pessimistic. Why it happens? As we were saying, as a young person, we think that everything is in our control. Just see an student, an aspiring student. You ask, I want to become uh, such and such, a software programmer, engineer, doctor, whatever it may be. Why? Because he or she thinks just once he becomes that, everything becomes favorable. He will have a good job, a good salary, good family, everything there won't be any problems in life. Many will be asking us that Swamiji in your so-called religious organizations, it's only the aged persons who come. It's not the young ones. And it's very natural because for the young ones, it is not we, it is you who are the ideal. When they see your huge house, the mansion, your most costly car, how you have got it? Oh, that's a wonderful job he's doing. So you are the ideal. Why should they come to us? It's you, when you are placed with your with the mansion, with your car, you know happiness is a far cry. And then you feel that there's something, some other way out. So it's very natural. It's very natural. It's only after a certain age, we get the inclination for the spirituality. Before that, the world is in the mad rush for all those things. So young is always, we find are optimistic. But when after getting all the things which you thought will, is going to give you happiness, you find that you have, you have actually were traveling through a maze and you have reached a blind alley. You can no more move forward. That's what happens with our life. We are in a blind maze. We don't know. We think that we are going to get out of the maze by the way which we, have, we are following. The path which we have chosen that is going to take us out of the maze. And at last we find we are in the blind alley. The maze has ended. And there is no way to move forward. And then we become pessimistic. The, all the young are optimistic and the old are pessimistic. And that's what in the modern psychology they speak of. That when in the life Again and again, we start experiencing inescapable trauma. That we have met the we have met, we are uh, reached the blind alley. We cannot move forward, and that speaks of some inescapable trauma. And that results in learned helplessness. 
you have learned the situation has taught you that you are a helpless creature from that learned helplessness comes a defeatist attitude and that results in all sorts of pessimism it's a simple equation but we are so myopic that we are so short sighted we cannot see just a few feet behind our range of vision that what's lying there we cannot see and we are following the same mistake again and again this world is an eternal conspiracy the parents have gone through the same way they have not they are not satisfied but they are so much uh, busy in building up their child's life in the same way they have built up their life without thinking that that why not think keep that spiritual aspect also in their mind sometimes we find as we go headlong in the same way the mistakes we have done i still remember when we were in training center in belurmat one of the uh, our acharyas one day very nicely he told that you are lucky so why we are lucky somehow don't think it is your uh, virtue or your credit somehow the stars most probably were favorable you can you could come out of this eternal conspiracy so that's what he was saying that is an eternal conspiracy the life it's just like the ships we are like the ship when the ships are going on a queue one ship takes the left all the ship will take left turn without asking that why the first ship to the left turn it simply blindly follows that's what we are doing that's the thing so here and we follow the same fate with all optimism we start the world is a big advertisement it advertises it uh, what you say it claims that it is going to give us many thing but at last we find it gives us nothing so as a rule the young are optimistic and the old pessimistic the young have life before them the old complain their day is gone hundreds of desires which they cannot fulfill struggle in their hearts both are foolish nevertheless life is good or evil according to the state of mind in which we look at it that's the orientation the state of mind it is neither by itself very interesting you know when the brahma created the, our puranas are wonderful to so the stories they speak of high all the spiritual ideas the abstract ideas sometimes is very difficult to understand and this mythology helps us all the so called our this puranas helps us to understand those wonderful abstract ideas when brahma created the world he appeared to be infatuated with it he is called animation his eye this eyelids never fall because once it falls the creation isn't there you will find a wonderful even in the uh, uh modern science in the you know the uh, the double slit experiment i am not going to the details of it this speaks the same thing that how this world the real world appears to be so real so tangible actually nothing there is nothing called solid it's the uh what you say the uh, dance of shiva constantly in motion there are so many wonderful books the tao of physics where the world has been created with the shiva's tandava dance uh so this but the, the tandava dance speaks of tremendous motion in which somehow i see the world as a solid palpable structure it's not there why it happens in uh the language of and the quantum physics just the moment you observe the probability collapses into reality i won't go into the details i'm just saying that what is been spoken of in the on the scripture echoes what is being spoken of in this present science the brahma is animation the moment he is not observing the so called reality just uh, will be won't be there it is all the probabilities the so called all the motions the probabilities collapses into reality to give a common example suppose in a classroom there is a huge noise uproar the children are running the teacher is not there and the principal from his office senses that 
A lot of noise is going on there. So he comes down the corridor and just stands on the door of the classroom and finds all are quiet. So what has happened? That chaotic classroom has settled down just observing the headmaster. Just when they say the headmaster is observing, it has collapsed. And this world is also like that chaotic classroom. It collapses into reality. The moment someone is observing, your observation makes it collapse into reality. So the ultimate, the cosmic mind, the Brahma, the cosmic mind is animation. He never even uh, winks his eyes because once he winks, the gone, creation is gone. So that's why he's animation. He's looking at his own creation infatuated. Now Shiva was very terribly angry. But what's there to be infatuated by this creation? As he has created, has, why should he be infatuated? Because after all, the creation is not perfect. There is so much misery, so much suffering. Shiva went to Brahma and told that your, your so-called creation is full of imperfection. And Shiva found Brahma is not responding. He's just looking at his creation and as if to speak of his that uh, ego, that's what uh, Shiva felt. The fifth head popped up. And now Shiva was so angry. They say that Shiva uprooted one of the heads of the Brahma. And in terrible pain, Brahma told that, why have you done that? He told that you have created this imperfect universe and you are so proud of it. And then what Brahma replies, that immediately makes Shiva realize the fact behind the universe. What Brahma told that I haven't created any misery. The creation is just ease. The happiness and misery which you are speaking of is the way the creation looks at this, the, the creature looks at this creation. And immediately Shiva realized that, the truth behind it. And that made him go into the deep contemplation. You know, this, this, our scriptures are wonderful. When Shiva came out of the contemplation, it is he himself who was uh, dancing with uttering the words, Hara Hara Vyom Vyom. What it means, Hara, when in deep contemplation you go beyond the mind, the entire creation ceases to exist. That is Hara. Hara means to cease, to take away. The world has been taken away in the meditation. Hara. To steal away. Vyoma. And this where the entire existence has gone, to the Vyoma, to the entire, that it has simply sublimated. You alone exist. Uh, there's even in Tagore songs, we find the same lines repeated. That in deep meditation, when the mind falls off, he's in that state, in ecstatic, he alone is the entire creation and is dancing that ecstatic joy, out of ecstatic joy. Calms down, compassion wells from his heart. He comes down to speak of this reality. That yoga, the entire yoga is the discovery of Shiva out of compassion for the entire humankind, of the entire creation. He went into the deep meditation and to teach the world the way of this meditation, that's the yoga. He comes down and that's in the form of Dakshinamurti, the compassionate one. So this is the idea which we find in our scripture in the form of myths. And that's the idea this we find that what Swamiji is saying, Life is good or evil according to the state of mind in which we look at it. It is neither by itself, it's neither good nor evil, neither joy, neither nor, nor sorrow. Fire by itself is neither good nor evil. The fire by itself is neither good nor evil. When it keeps us warm, we say, how beautiful is fire. When it burns our fingers, we blame it. Still, it is neither good nor bad. According, as we use it, as we use it, it produces in us the feeling of good or bad. So also in this world. It is perfect. By perfection is meant that it is perfectly fitted to meet its ends. We may all be perfectly sure that it will go on 
beautifully well without us and we need not bother our heads wishing to help it so why it is swamiji saying this world is perfect yes the way we want to reform the world that way it is not perfect it's perfect to make us perfect it's not if you just think this you are going to make this world a pleasure garden beautiful garden then it will be a big failure in some other place the swami ji is saying this in a very nice way this world is not a pleasure garden garden it is a gymnasium where we have came to make ourselves strong so if you take it as a gymnasium it is perfect it's a wonderful gymnasium it can help you to evolve spiritually and that also through your experiences through the experiences first you will go through the bhoga and that bhoga itself will make you realize that there is no way out through it and this bhoga itself will again take you to apavarga that all the so called your desires are bound to fall off to take you ultimate it beyond the ego to the spiritual realization the world is in the even in the yoga shastra is like a book it's an open book once you have studied it there is no need for it once you have studied the book your all your interest is gone you just keep it aside so the world is like that it has a purpose and that way it is serving the purpose perfectly if you look it as a gymnasium but if you look it as a pleasure garden you will be you're bound to be fooled that's why swami is saying you are foolish in the modern days we say that which suppose there are two planes which plane is better they will ask you can never you can never immediately it will be asked what's your benchmark you want security well for that this plane is better or this car is better you want comfort for that that car is better so what's the benchmark which you are choosing on that depends its so called efficacy so for the world if you put the benchmark as pleasure then it's never perfect you are never going to get it if you put the benchmark as an educator as a gymnasium where it is going to take us through some experiences to through some moral exercises ultimately to the freedom spiritual emancipation it's perfect and that's what swami is saying so if you think that this world has to be converted into a pleasure garden and for that you have a role to play you are going to be before you are going to be fooled you know that's it's, there is no way out but it is perfect in the way that through bhoga and apavarga at last you are going to reach that ultimate state which is your real nature and there lies the importance of karma yoga so it's a orientation just not helping others with what orientation we move out reach out to help others that's the thing which really speaks of karma yoga so this this is the lines on which this chapter uh, will continue a few more paragraphs are there so we will again take up in the next class to continue with the ideas uh, which swamiji is speaking on this chapter we help ourselves not the world with this we stop our discussion today thank you namaskar